Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we've got Chris Miles with Money Ripples, and he flew in from Salt Lake City, Utah, to talk about the importance of building passive income to go along with your active business. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. One question I get all the time is how do I become one of the 100 millionaires? The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years, Take consistent action and you will become one. If you want to get there faster, send me a DM on Instagram and we'll see if we can help you. If you get value out of the show, please tag your friend below, share this episode right now. That way we, that way we can all grow together. You ready? Let's do it. All right. So first question is what got you into real estate? Uh, not on purpose, you know, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, you know, I was a financial advisor teaching the same old crap that they all do, right? Which is save money in mutual funds and real estate's not that great. Uh, There's a guy I trained to be a financial advisor, right? And he went to leave. This is 2005. He left to go partner up with his dad to do real estate investing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, good luck. We'll see how poor you soul. do. Poor soul. Yeah, poor soul. I'm sure you'll be broke and coming back to work mm-hmm. for me again, right? Well, about four months later, it's right after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year's, that right before 2006, I call him up just to wish him happy, you know, happy Christmas. You know, I'm British now. <laughs> so wish him Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And, uh, and, as, and as I call him up, I'm like, well, how are things going with this real estate gig? He's like, man, it's awesome. My, my dad has already doubled his income as a professor at the local university. I was like, oh, come on, Doug. That's, that's too good to be true, right? right? As you always hear people say about us in real estate. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, man, like it's legit, it's happening. And so we got in this argument about, about what's better, stocks, real estate, stocks, real estate. Finally, he just stopped me. He said, Chris, what principles are you teaching your clients? I'm like, what do you mean by principles? You mean like rule 72, compound interest? He's like, dude, you're not even close. Yeah. He's like, all right, I'll dumb it down for you. How about this? How many of your clients are financially free? Like really financially free where they don't worry about money? And I said, well, let's see, I've got some retired doctors. They watch CNN. So if they watch CNN, they're always freaking out. So no, like none of them. Mm-hmm. They're all worried about running out of money. He said, well, great job, Chris. Way to go. <laughs> well, how about this, Chris? He's like, if any, anybody's got this figured out, it should be you guys as financial advisors. So how many of you are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning, not off the trails and the renewals and all that stuff, but actually doing these mutual fund investments? How many of you guys are financially free? I'm like, well... I know that some of those guys have been working since the late 70s and they're still working. So I don't know, none, maybe one guy. And I found out that, that guy wasn't either, right? He was just all show, you know, all hat, no cattle, as they say in, in Texas, right? Instagram famous. Instagram famous, right? In today's world. And uh, so he's like, well, there's your problem. I'm like, all right, well, give me the answer. What's the answer then? He's like, dude, you just got done arguing with me about why real estate sucks. Why would I even talk to you about this? And so he did the whole sales takeaway thing yeah. that I don't think he even intentionally did it, mm-hmm. but it was enough to be like, dude, you got me here. Like, give me something. He's like, all right, if you're serious, and I really don't think you are, go get this book by Robert Kiyosaki called Who Took My Money, mm-hmm. which to sum it up for you guys, you know, mutual funds suck, right? Right. They're horrible. Um, he's like, and then listen to this AM talk radio show, because it's a pre-podcast, right? AM talk radio show that has these two real estate investors, you know, from the local area and just listen to it. And so I did for the next few months, started listening to it, got intrigued, um, started to find out more from him because they wouldn't even teach strategy at all. Mm -hmm. It drove me nuts. They're all talking about principles, right? These economic principles, they're big libertarians, right? And all that kind of stuff. And uh, which was awesome, you know, but I was like, yeah, but how do I do it? And uh, and so I started to learn from him a little bit and and some of those things. And 
and really just blew my mind. Like it expanded my mind more and more. And so 2006, I was in my starter home. I actually went and turned it into a rental. I turned around, sold it to an investor at, mm-hmm. at full appraisal, and then went and leased it back as a, as a renter. So then I can then sublease it to somebody else. So I wanted to basically pull out all the equity, but not own the property, but mm-hmm. still get rent off of it. And so that was my first real estate deal back in 2006. Turning a primary, leasing it back, and then subletting it mm-hmm. for cash flow. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> so the, this radio show, were these the real estate radio guys or were these someone else? No, somebody else, like just local. Someone local. Guys. Yeah. Um, what principles? So he mentioned principles and yeah. he wants to talk about anything else besides principles. Now I'm curious. Yeah. What are the principles? Yeah, so they had like these 13 principles they even print on this little black card, right? Mm-hmm. They call it like the producer revolution, you know, and basically about being a creator, you know, instead of a consumer and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so like one of the principles that really stuck with me that really changed the way I thought about money and even how I dealt with money was that dollars follow value created, right? I mean, just a simple principle that if you want more money, stop focusing on the money, start focusing on how can I serve people, solve problems, create more value in a way that money is just a natural byproduct, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and so I started obsessing over that. I'm like, well, yeah, how do I create the win-win? You know, like, how do I get people what they want? Which was weird because even as a financial advisor, I, was, I did that for four years prior to that, right? I started like right after 9-11. And, and money always seemed mysterious, right? But when they put it that way and they say, no, this is not, this is not some weird little game. This is formulaic. Yeah. Like there's natural laws of the universe that naturally has to follow it. You know, like value, really the principle is value follows value, but in our world, dollars follow value, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I started focusing on that, it was amazing how it demystified everything. And, really? and it wasn't just like the zero sum game. They talked a lot about scarcity and abundance, right? Like abundance is the secret to wealth is one of those other principles, mm-hmm. right? You know, like they talked about abundance, like, you know, not believing that there's a zero sum game out there. Because a lot of times you people believe that you have to, lose in order to have somebody else win or vice versa. If you win, somebody else has to lose, right? Right. Well, yeah. that's a lot of that scarcity mindset. Uh, we met re- very recently, right? Yeah. A billionaire. Yeah. Right. And he's just talking about um, basically how he's created value and so on. And the comment that was made in the room was like, you don't sound like a billionaire mm-hmm. because for most people, if you're a billionaire, you had to screw over a lot of people. Yeah. That's the worldview, is That's it? the worldview. Yep. That's not how the world works. No, not at all. Like, if you really look at most millionaires and millionaires, especially when you get to know them, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying there aren't people out there that also there live in a scarcity too. world yeah. that know how to produce millions and billions of dollars, right? But the vast majority are people like us. We're out there trying to create value. We're out there trying to make people's lives better. I mean, even Bezos, you know, you can say whatever you want about him, but still what he's created, created a lot of freaking value for people. Right. A lot of people create work, created more wealth for themselves because he existed. Uh, the internet is another example. I mean, exchange creates wealth is another one, right? The faster the rate of exchange, the faster that money can change hands of people, the more wealth is created. It's the velocity of money, which might be a topic, might be a little over the top at this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you another question because you brought up Who Took My Money yeah. by Robert Kiyosaki. Right. I have not read that book. What, are, what was the biggest one or two takeaways from that book? Really, it just get, dives into why mutual funds are not the cat's meow, right? Yeah. For those that still use that phrase. So, and I'm asking this because I read um, uh, Money Master the Game by Tony Robbins. Right. And there's a section in there where he talks about the biggest scam of mutual funds is these no-load funds. Uh-huh. And those no-load funds are actually have a 3 or 4% load that they just don't tell you about. Yeah. Is that what they talk about in that book? Uh, you know, honestly, I don't even remember. It's been so long. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised. 
because right. yeah, there's, I mean, just like 401ks, people are like, well, I don't have any fees on those because there's no sales commission. Yeah, but there's 17 fees that come out, administrative fees that come out of 401k, mm -hmm. which usually total at least one to 2% a year that right. you never even notice comes out. Yeah, this is a lot like we had um, Blake Selby here a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. You're talking about all the different fees in a settlement statement. Yeah. All these junk fees that you might not be paying attention to that if you don't pay attention to, add up pretty quick. They sure do. So you turn your primary, sounds like basically more or less turn into a master lease where you can lease it for more to yeah. cash flow. That was your first deal. What was your next transaction after that? Uh, next transaction was going broke. <laughs> so, I mean, I did, I guess I did help with a few other transactions where we like did some like, you know, kind of like equity stripping mm -hmm. really. Right. I mean, that's what some of those guys were doing a lot back in 2006, 2007. It was like, Hey, the market's appreciating kind of like it is now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, Hey, strip all the equity out, move it into more properties and just keep stripping, move it, strip it, move it. Right. And, uh, is that the words they were using. Yeah. Equity stripping was the actual word. They even equity stripped cars. You know, because I think cars. that's a word. That's an expression that's frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in the in, in the legal world, <laughs> equity stripping. Oh yeah, well, and, and it didn't work too well. Actually, one of those guys actually ended up in jail. You know, yeah. as a result. That's why I'm asking so, that question. Yeah, well, the problem that he had was that you know he had raised tons of capital, right? Mm -hmm. uh, him and his partners. He had his own inner circle. Problem is they started you know borrowing money from other people. So he's like, hey, I'll pay you five percent a month. That's what the hard money rate was. Five percent a month for his inner circle. But then those guys are like, well, hey. We can create value by, you know, borrow money from our friends and family. And so they're like, we'll pay you 4% a month. And so it went on, right? And mm -hmm. so he built this huge empire, $120 million empire that collapsed. It was a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, it became like a Ponzi scheme. There was assets, so it technically wasn't. But the problem is that they weren't cash flowing, right? They, he was not focused on the cash flow and the profit. You cannot create 60% year-on-year yield at scale. No, he's just trying to flip. He was yeah. just a flipper is really all he was, like a glorified flipper that just held on to these properties in hopes that he might do something with them. He was betting on the appreciation. He sure was. So you got maybe a handful of deals and then the mm -hmm. recession hit you? And the recession hit, yeah. All right, so, so what'd you do with the recession? So yeah, so 2007, so by the summer of 2006, I was financially independent. I was yeah. like, hey, you were a genius. I don't have to work. Yeah, I'm 28 years old, almost 29. Like, yeah. I'm awesome, you know? Right. And I got the Midas touch, whatever I touch turns to gold. It's like, bing! You know, mm -hmm. but the problem was, of course, that, you know, that ego bites you, right? Like oh, yeah. there's time. always a humbling, you know? And so, yeah, 2007, I came out of retirement. I was like, I'm going to teach people how to get out of the rat race. I partnered up with some other guys who were in the same situation. We were focused towards real estate investors, most of them doing the same kind of strategies, right? Not really focusing on cash flow. And then, and then I remember the summer, I was like, okay, I bought a new house, got my little McMansion, right? And it was on my dream home. And I remember trying to get a cash out refinance. I'm like, I'm gonna cash out this money, use it, to started investing with. And I remember in July that the bank said, ooh, you know what? We're changing a few of the rules right now. If you can get your credit score up two points by next month, then we'll give you the loan. August rolls around, they're like, oh, great job. But just last week, we just changed the rules a little bit. We need you to go do X, Y, and Z mm -hmm. before we'll give you the loan. September rolls around, I'm like, all right, let's get this done. Okay, like I've got 150,000 equity stuck in this property and I was doing the Dave Ramsey thing. I was just throwing money in because, hey, I don't have anything else to do with the money. Throw it in the equity because I can always, always pull it back out. Right. Because, you know, you can always get a HELOC. That's why I hate velocity banking, right? Mm -hmm. When people like use that HELOC strategy because I'm like, I watched it not work because pretty <laughs> soon they said it. September, like we can't give you a loan. We're not doing any cash or refinances, especially if you're a business owner. Mm -hmm. And so I had this property that was stuck and then everything went upside down with the markets, everything else, everything started depreciating. Um, I was now upside down the house and I couldn't even short sell it. So by 2009, 
Next thing I know, there's a knock on my door and uh, they're saying like, hey, I just bought your house at auction for like 342. I'm like, dude, we're trying to, we had an offer at 540 just a few months ago. Like, well, it was, you know, of course it was a, uh, you know, good old Lehman Brothers. So yeah, um, I got my $300 settlement. It was great. But, I, you know, but yeah, like next thing I know, there's a knock on the door. I'm like, hey, we're about to have a baby. Can I rent it from you for two weeks, you know, and how to get out of it. And so at the same time, my other property, you know, like the starter home they had, mm-hmm. um, I was able to get out of that. Luckily, kind of breaking even. I at least didn't have to pay much extra beyond cleaning it up. Mm-hmm. But it got trashed by my renters. So that wasn't good, you know, because they were kind of like Section 8 tenants, you know, and, and it, just, it just went downhill. Like, right. next thing, and, and I wasn't tracking my money, right? Like, I wasn't tracking the cash flow. So I went from, you know, was like millionaire to upside down millionaire. I went, I was like now upside down over a million dollars. I was in the hole about 15,000, 16,000 a month between my business and my personal life. And I was just sinking fast. How are you a million dollars upside down? Mostly from, you know, negative equity in the properties and stuff like that. Like two houses or more than two houses? Uh, at that time, there were two that had two loans houses. on so them. So between your yeah. primary and the other one that you sublet? Because uh-huh. that one, you were able to sell it, right? Uh, eventually, yeah. But yeah. at the time, you know, at one point, like in 2008, I was about over a million dollars in debt. So then I yeah. started trying to liquidate, right? Like sell off whatever I could. Um, I'd already run up all my credit cards. I'd you know, got a nice Mercedes. I basically turned that back in to mm-hmm. the dealer. I said, listen, I'm going to go late on it. You're going to take it anyways. Here you go. They end up auctioning it for 30,000 less than I owed. And right. uh, That's I remember, how, how I, that times were, those times were. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I remember even the collection guy, like I'm like trying to, I'm working late in the office that night. And I get a call from a collector saying, Hey, you know, you owe 30,000 bucks on this. Can you get, you know, can you, can we work out a deal? Can you do a monthly payment? And the payment was like 1200 bucks a month. I'm like, you realize that the previous payment was almost 1200 bucks a month. If I could have make the, made that payment, I would have still had this car. You wouldn't be calling me right now. Yeah. And I was like, sorry, I can't pay you. Well, when can you? I'm like, I don't know, but I know I will. Because I was like, I'm not going to file for bankruptcy. I'm stubborn as heck. I'm going to make it work. And he's like, you know what? You're the reason why this country's in the problem it is today. Like, you're the reason why we're in this mess. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just went off. I was like, dude, you realize, like, I've hired people. Like, I've paid people hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do not give me that crap. Like, I've created jobs. Like, now I, I'm barely employed, but... You know, I did create jobs up to that point, you know, like, so don't even give me this crap that I destroyed the country. Yeah. Like, and I just hung up the phone and I was so pissed. <laughs> I had, um, I went through my own challenges, mm-hmm. right? And had to deal with my own fair share of debt collectors. Yeah. And there were some nice ones. Yeah. But there were some really dumb ones out there. They were really rude. And oh, yeah. it was just amazing. Like, you're really talking to me like this. And um, mm-hmm. I never hung up on any of them. Yeah. What I did was I would just kind of re- return their their tone uh-huh. and I would be the one that would get hung up on. So I still remember I was like, didn't you just start to sue me? He said, yeah. I said, then why are we still talking? And then he hung up on me. So, all right. So a million dollar in debt. Mm-hmm. Were you still a financial advisor or were you just real estate at that point? I was, no, I was, I, I mean, basically my real estate was gone, right? I mm-hmm. was, I hit the reset button. I mean, without, but you were still giving people financial advice. Yeah. Related so, to f- mutual funds or to real estate? No, so I was done with mutual funds by 2006. Okay. I'm like, no more. Right? All right. Um, but I started switching the tone because 2007, when I realized I was starting to be negative cash flow and I was starting to see my savings dwindle, my mm. credit cards run up. I'm like, okay, I'm back in the rat race. And, and I'm one of those guys, I can't teach something I'm not doing, right? Like I can only teach something that I'm actually practicing. So I was like, all right, I can't do this. You know, I can't teach people how to get out of the rat race because I'm back in it. Mm-hmm. And so the one thing I could do, because during the recession, people were like, you know what, Chris, I'd love to pay you to, to learn how to do this stuff with our money, but 
honestly, I don't know, even have the money. Yeah. And I remember thinking in the back of my head, I would never say this verbally, but I remember thinking, your situation is way better than mine right now. <laughs> um, I'm getting pretty creative trying to figure out how to make it work. I mean, I even had my, my wife at that time, like she was threatening to take the kids and leave, like Cinderella Man, if you ever watched that movie, you know, where she took the kids and because they, they didn't have heat. So mm. she was trying to take them to their sisters and he like freaked out and went and got welfare. I was in that same situation. She's like, man, she's moving with my sister. You figure this out. I'm like, mm. I need you now. Like, I can't have you do that. Yeah. So all this mess and storms happening, right? And so I was like, okay, the one thing I am doing is I'm getting creative. I'm getting resourceful. So when they would tell me they didn't have the money, I would say, well, if I help you find the money, would you pay me? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, of course. I'm like, great. Let's look at your situation. And so I started focusing more on how to be creative, like how to find the money, like how to, you know, how to like even like, you know, start tracking money because most mm -hmm. people weren't tracking money, including myself. You know, I just started to do that. And that's what opened my eyes. Like I'm in the whole 15,000, 16,000 a month because when you have money coming in like air, you just get lazy sometimes. Right. So I started really tracking and do that. So I'm getting them to do the same thing, get creative on how they refinance their debts or whatever it might be. Um, you know, if they have equity in their home, which that was starting to have less and less of back then. Right. You know, just try to do that kind of stuff. And, uh, and on average, pretty soon, as I started to really perfect that process, they were finding like 2,800 bucks a month, about 34 grand a year um, without investing. So doing nothing with investing, nothing with real estate, just finding money, right? And they would use that money to invest with you? They, they would either use that money to save up, to invest, um, or even just, you know, pay off debts. You know, if they're just trying to do that debt snowball or whatever But what were be. they paying you? Uh, they would just pay me a consulting fee. Got it. Yeah. So you were consulting at this point. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm just consulting, you know, and uh -huh. same thing I do now. Yeah. So it's interesting. You maybe last year you went through this again then, because there was a period of time. Uh-huh. Right, the the toilet paper crisis of twenty twenty. <laughs> yes, there was. Um, everyone was freaking out. Uh huh. And unfortunately, you know, some business owners laid a bunch of people off. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to say I didn't lay anybody off. Yeah. A lot of people were going through their expenses, mm -hmm. and they're looking at all of their recurring subscriptions. Yeah. Or these expenses, like, do we really need these expenses? Yeah. A lot of people went through that last year. So I'm guessing you probably did that again last year in, in high volume. Like going through my own expenses? No, helping other people figure out how to get through this. Because everyone's yeah. freaking out about the money in their cash flow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was an interesting time, especially for a few months, right? Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of dental, dental patients, or patients, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, just kidding. Like I had a lot of dental clients, right? Yeah. And so a lot of them were like out of work for two months, you know, right. while they're trying to figure things out. Some were like, do I go back as a dentist? Do I retire? You know, do I, what do I do? So it was an interesting time, yeah, because it was really, I mean, I remember the, the mantra I gave them at the time was, you know, three things. It was get lean, get liquid, and get out, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's like make sure you tr are tracking your money. Like, you need to do that in your business. You need to do that at home. You better make sure you're doing that. Like, get lean. Like, make sure you're, you got it down to the bare bones of what's necessary, what's productive. And I was like, get liquid. I'm like, guys, make sure you have cash on hand. We don't know what's coming but it's good to have cash. Cause that's the thing I learned that I didn't do well during the last recession. If right. I had, if I wouldn't have put, sunk all that money in equity in my home, you know, which like the whole Dave Ramsey method, I would have been way better off. I would have had more cash to be able to play with and weather that storm out, keep a level head, yeah. right? So I'm not panicking, freaking out in scarcity. I would have been way better off. So I'm like, get liquid and then I'm like, get out. Like if you got stock market stuff, you might want to look at getting that money out. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not recommending it. Cause again, I'm not securities licensed anymore, not since 2005, but I'm like, hey, 
if you've got cash you can get from places, you may want to get that money out, and then we start looking for cash flowing investments because there will be more opportunities. Right. But right now is gather your, you know, gather everything you can. So you were able to get yourself out of this million dollar in debt. Mm-hmm. Um, the house got foreclosed on the primary. Yep. Second one, the the original primary. That one, that one we just sold off and so pretty much broke it. even. Okay. Yeah. And then after that, after you 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 lost your home. Were you at zero or were you negative still? Oh, I was still a little negative. Yeah, because I still had all those credit card balances that were in collections. I had the Mercedes balance that was past due, right? And all that kind of stuff. So, all right. So then you were able to help consult, mm-hmm. move your way out of it. Yeah. And then along the way, you learned the skill to become creative. Yeah. What did you do with, with what you figured out? I, I taught it. I mean, oh, you mean in my own personal life? Your own personal life and then what you did for your you know, clients eventually. Yeah. So my own personal life was like, okay, let's, let's hunker down. Like, you know, obviously when I moved out of that house, you know, I got a, a rental that was a quarter of the payment. Mm-hmm. So that was liberating a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I was stubborn. Like I didn't want to do that. Like I wanted to make it work. I was going to make it happen. Right. Yeah. And, and it wasn't happening, you know, like it was just wasn't working out that way. Um, but I'll tell you, like, I remember, you know, 2009, you know, Mar- April, 2009 is when I basically like it got foreclosed on. Right. And May, beginning of May, we had to move out. Um, I remember in fall of 2008, I remember I was praying hard, like, what do I do? Like, do I, you know, do I make a career change? Do I get a job? What's going to happen? And I just remember getting that distinct impression, like, Chris, hang in there. It's okay. Like, it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, all right, how long is this going to be? And it took some time, right? But eventually things did get there. Uh, but it gave me that enough, that kind of that fuel of faith, right? Gotcha. To keep me going, even though I was on fumes. I was on a lot of fumes at that time. Um, I mean, I remember even like August 2009, right? Mm-hmm. So after I'd already moved out, we downsized everything, we sold off stuff. A lot of the money we had to help us with the move was selling off all of our crap. So then, you know, it was like two or 3,000 bucks we raised so that we could have enough money to pay rent the next month, you know? And yeah. uh, I was actually on welfare. You know, we were, we were getting welfare from stuff, which uh, my wife at that time, she was like, hey, you're going in to get it. Like mm-hmm. you need to know what it feels like to be ashamed and go in and get this mu- this food and stuff. So I'm like walking in with my suit and everything because I used to wear suits back in those days to try to impress people, right? Yeah. Um, so I'd be walking in a suit. I'm like, I can't believe I'm here. You know, I, I can't believe I'm at this place right now. Um, and so humbling. It's very humbling. I mean, we had you know some friends and family that would help us out last minute. I mean, there's times where like we don't know where we're gonna have food. You know, like really. And there's times I wouldn't eat lunch. You know, I would just starve through it because I remember seeing this. Ben Franklin quote that said that he would let himself starve before he let his kids starve. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, my kids are going to starve. So, okay, I'm not making the money. Got to get out because all the business overhead was taking most of the, the sales I was doing. What kind of business overhead did you have? Uh, we had office expense. Uh, so we had a shared expense with these partners. So I was paying for like the front desk receptionist, you know, we we're paying for, you know, just the building and the utilities and everything else. Um, so if I sold like one or two new clients that month, I might've got a paycheck. Because yeah. it was like three, it was almost 3000 a month they were taking on my check. Um, I found out later they were actually pocketing a little bit more than they should have been. You mm-hmm. know, it wasn't exactly equitably distributed, but I was sold. I was like, I'm going to yeah. do this. I'm going to make it work, you know? And, and it was good. It was character developing because there's, it's just some things you can never learn mm-hmm. in abundance, right? There's some things you just learn through trial and experience. Right. And if there's anything I learned was just, faith, you know, that, and persistence, like not giving up, you know, even though there was mornings I woke up and I wanted to, you know, and I remember there was a August, 2009, after we'd been in that house for a few months, uh, my wife was like, 
you know, screaming at me. She's like, when are we going to be out of this? Like, this has been two years now, you know, 2007 to 2009, we've been going with this crap. When is it going to get better? You keep saying it's going to get better. When is it actually going to get better? And I remember I was just pissed. And yeah. I was like, I just pointed out, I was like, listen, there's going to be a day. I'm going to say, I told you so. Like, I just know it with like deep in my gut. I know that things are about to shift and turn around and you may not believe it, but I do. And I just walked out, slammed the door and went to the office. And it was at that point, like, I just got this point of submission. I'm like, I don't care if it takes, you know, 20 days or 20 years, I'm going to keep doing this. Cause I know this has got to work. I know that principles govern that mm-hmm. if I keep doing the right things, it's going to work out and it's going to be in the right, exactly the right timing. And once I got to that place of submission and released, that was amazing how everything got better. Right. Um, in fact, it was actually the end of, by the end of September, like all of a sudden, like clients started flooding in. We had just the right relationships come at the right time. My cash flow process I developed, like was starting to help those guys. Mm-hmm. And they were influencers as well. They were like coaches and consultants, right? And they had their own following. So they're like, you gotta get, you gotta hire these guys. They're awesome. So it took a long time, but then it got to the right people and it just expanded and exploded. So that by October, just two months later after our argument, I was like, you remember that time when we got in that argument and I said, there's going to be a day I told you so. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I won't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there's a couple of things there. I think one of them is if you do the right things, right. Mm -hmm. Everything else will take care of itself. Yeah. Right. And it takes faith to have that faith in yourself. Uh, The other thing is we all think it's hard to be an entrepreneur and I'm Mm -hmm. not saying it's not. Yeah. It sucks a lot of the times. Well, not a lot of people talk about, it's even harder to be married to an entrepreneur. <laughs> That's right. Right. Um, you and I were talking earlier with, uh, with another peer, mm-hmm. talking about going, his, he's having his own challenges. Yeah. Right. It's hard. It is. Being married or connected in one way or another. Yeah. Uh, with being in a relationship with somebody who's an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. Because we're crazy. Yeah. Right. And we'll, 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 we'd rather work 70 hours a week at below minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Then work for somebody else. Yep. So, and our family has to pay that price. And it wasn't like a trying. I did try to get a paper out once because I'm like, <laughs> if I do it four to seven in the morning, you know, that's right before I go to work. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm apparently unemployable. They didn't even call me back. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, all right. So you've uh, been referred to as the anti-financial mm-hmm. advisor. Right. What does that mean? Well, you know what every financial advisor teaches, right? I mean, yeah, it's mutual no funds. Yeah, mutual funds. It's yeah. like save everything, spend nothing, save it in mutual funds. And, and it's, like, it's like Mexican food, right? You know, I like Mexican food, but let's, let's admit it. Burritos, tacos, fajitas, they all have the same freaking ingredients, right? Better be careful. There's a room full of guys <laughs> next door, but continue. Again, I love Mexican food, right? But they just package it with the same ingredients and, and call it different names. Uh-huh. And that's all financial advisors do, right? They're right. just Mexican food. Uh-huh. They, they just, all they do is they sell mutual funds or insurances. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, you know, annuities is really just an insurance combined with mutual funds or not mutual funds, right? Yeah. It's all the same crap. And if you think about it, for the last 30, 40 years, like financial advisors really hit the scenes in the 70s, right? Like that's when they started to really come on deck and, and get popular. Well, if Americans aren't better off financially, you don't see people financially free saying like, wow, that 401k was so awesome. Or I love my financial advisor. Like I'm financially free right now. You don't hear the same conversation that we have mm-hmm. when we get together, right? It's, it's not the same. And so nowhere near. nowhere near. And so if evidence, and I like evidence, right? I like to know things work. Well, if the evidence says that it hasn't worked yet, why in the freak are we doing the same thing, right? Yeah. That's insanity, right? 
So there's a couple of different things. Like we said earlier, mm-hmm. the no load funds. Yeah. They still make the three or four percent a year or whatever. Yeah. So truly, if it's making twelve percent, you're really making eight. If it's making eight, you're really making four. Yeah. Right. No one really talks about that. Yeah. But another thing, I actually had another friend on the show, uh, Chris Noggle. Yeah. And he demonstrated that if the fund goes up, if it goes, the fund goes down fifty percent. Yep. And it goes up fifty percent. All in all, that fund was break even for two years. Yeah. But your bank account that went from a hundred thousand to fifty thousand mm-hmm. and then increased fifty percent went to seventy five thousand. That's right? right. So yeah, the return over two years on average was zero, mm-hmm. but the net to your bank account was negative twenty five percent. Average return. That's and, right. Yeah. So the creative math behind that. Yeah. It's it should be illegal. Yeah. But it's right. it's a it's it's like figures don't lie, but liars figure, right? Right. It's so true. Wall Street is too tight in the Washington, I think, for that to ever change. Mm-hmm. But it's crazy how much Wall Street's stealing from all of us. I was pissed oh, yeah. when I learned about all this. Yeah, but uh, it's true. Like that average versus actual yield is two very different numbers, yeah. right? Like I always taught as a financial advisor, ten or twelve percent, and I actually learned that whole average versus actual mm-hmm. in two thousand four. And it was actually a product trainer that came to try to tell us why index funds were better than the typical variable funds that we were doing, right? Got it. And he taught us that. And by the way, every financial advisor got it wrong. He's like, okay, you lose half, you know, you lost 50%, you're down to $50,000, right? So what do you need to get back to breaking even? And we're all like, 50%. He's like, wrong. You need 100% to break, yeah. break even. And that's before fees come out. Right. <laughs> and it was mind blowing. And I remember I cornered the guy out in the parking lot. I said, so... We, we're just running numbers here. And if we would have had like fixed rate stuff from 1995, you know, this by 2005, and I started to really question everything, right? Like by, from 95 to 2005, all of us would have had more money despite the fact we had the roaring 90s where the market was going crazy. We would have all had money, more money. He's like, yeah, but you're young. You can weather the storm. You can take those high risks to get those high returns. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is bull crap. I'm just a salesman in a suit. Yeah. And that's really what a financial advisor is. Whether their their heart's in it like I was, like I really wanted to help people, but I realized I was just a pawn for the financial institutions, mm-hmm. right? And and just so you know, like they, everybody says the average is like 10 or 12%, even the market, right? Last 30 years, I went and just did this a couple weeks ago. The real rate of return of the S&P 500 before fees is 8.4%, which by the way is high. Mm-hmm. That's a high number. That's including the last 13 years of up market, straight up. We've never had a market where it's gone straight up for 13 years. So already things are out of whack. You think 8% is realistic before fees? Come yeah. on. You're lucky to get 6 or 7%, right, after fees and everything else. And, and on top of that, here's the other problem I see. Because I get a ton of clients coming, they're asset rich and cash poor, right? Um, they're like, hey, I got this money sitting around, or I got, this, but it's not creating any cash flow. You know, this guy had $3 million. He's like, I got all these mutual funds. And my financial advisor says, good job, keep going. You know, yeah. and his goal wants to be a half million a year of passive income. I said, well, okay, well, if you do that, if you want half a million a year of passive income, you, you got to understand the rules of what they're, he's coming off of. Cause he's going to say like the whole 4% rule, like the whole fire method, like mm-hmm. that thing's antiquated old, that 4% number is way too aggressive. Well, let's explain what fire is. Yeah. So the financially independent retire early movement, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it's funny cause I was actually trying to get on their podcast and I joined their Facebook group. And I thought, they're guys just like me, financially independent, they retired early. No, they were guys all in mutual funds. 
and they were believing, and the most were millennials, and they mm-hmm. believed that they were financially independent, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can live on 4%, I can be cheap, and I'm there, I'm fire, right. you know? <laughs> the thing is, like, 4%, even 20 years ago, we were questioning whether that was too aggressive, because people are living longer, mm-hmm. and the returns on retirement type of income, like with bonds and stuff, is lower. So we're saying maybe 2 or 3%. Yeah. So if you even save up, like in this guy's case, $3 million in all these mutual funds, right? Well, if he lives even on 3%, play devil's advocate against my point, right? 3%, that's 90 grand a year that he's living on off 3 million. If he only had a million bucks, that's 30 grand a year before yeah. taxes. I mean, that's not the half a million he was looking for. No, not even close. And I'm like, dude, if you have 3 million, if we even get you a 10% rate of return, that's 300 grand a year right now. Right. Which for him would actually make him financially independent, not free, not where he wanted to be with his income number, but it would replace his income right now. Mm-hmm. Like that's way different than the guy telling him, yeah, keep going. And hopefully you'll get up to that $15 million mark. So then you can live off half a million a year, but right. you have to triple his money in the next 10 years. Hopefully that's yeah. that BS is just not cool. Like that's the stuff that I'm fighting against right now. So how's that fight going? It's a long fight. I'll tell you. I mean, <laughs> you're fighting that fight alone. I mean, there's not a lot of people talking about this. No, thing. there's not. I mean, yeah. the thing is that we are right. And we right. get it. But most of us, I mean, when you're already financially independent, like I was able to get financially independent again by the end of 2016, the second mm-hmm. time. Right. Yeah. But I had to get to that point of, all right, do I keep going? You know, do I just kind of enjoy my life or do I keep building this? You know, and, and for a year or so, I kind of took off. I was working five hours a week. Yeah. But I remember 2018, I'm like, it's going to grow whether I want it to or not. Do I just tell people no? Or do I become a teacher and try to lead this kind of movement? You know, I know I'm not the only one, but I want to be one of the leaders. There's not a lot of people talking about it. No. I mean, and, and some of them, like Kiyosaki, won't be around forever, right? Right. You know, he's, he's not going to live forever. So... There's got to be somebody to help usher that movement through. And, uh, and that's what I'm trying to do because I came from that world. I was that financial advisor. I know it doesn't work. I, I've proven it by the numbers it doesn't work. we got to do something different. And that's why we need real estate and, and we need passive income. So one thing we were talking about earlier, beginning of the show, was mm-hmm. that um, how important it is to get passive income. You know, yeah. you and I, we're, we have a lot of mutual friends. Mm-hmm. We're in Collective Genius together. And these guys are doing really well actively as a matter of fact yeah the last 18 months is the best 18 months for most of our careers yeah which is crazy because again toilet paper crisis of 2020 Uh um you saved a few squares it's good i did save a few squares (laughs) so talk to me about the importance of passive income and why it's so important i mean we're we're doing really well with active income what's why is passive income important there's a lot of levels to that right here's the number one reason you want to get to the place where you work because you want to not because you have to because I remember even last year, the big crisis of 2020, right? A lot of wholesalers were like, crap, what if they shut it down in my state? What if I'm a non-essential business? Yeah. What are you going to do? Pennsylvania, Virginia. Yeah. Those guys are freaking out. Oh, yeah. There was a ton of guys in our mastermind group mm-hmm. freaking out. And rightfully so. Because if they hadn't prepared, if they hadn't got built a portfolio of passive income outside of it, they should be screwed. You know, should be freaking out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not a good place to be. And I've learned that too, is that you never can rely 100% on active income, even if you're the entrepreneur, right? And I even see this in like uh, network marketing. Like network marketing are probably the hardest people to get to for this because they believe that their company will always pay them. They earn their residual income. And I separate this, by the way. I say residual income is like business type of passive income, Mm -hmm. where passive income is more like real estate investment stuff, right? Money working for you versus, you know, business systems. Well, they're like, I got the residual income to keep coming in. I'm like, yeah, but what if that company shuts down? 
like you're not a real business owner here. You it's know? like a pension. Yeah, it's like a pension. Yeah, they're like, oh, it never will. I'm like, you know how many of these companies have shut down or even sold to a competitor or something else? Uh, I had a father-in-law. Same thing happened to him. He actually got booted out of a big uh, network marketing company that he had made millions in. Wow. And they booted him out. Just said, you know what? We don't want to deal with your stuff. You're gone. Mm-hmm. And he was unemployed. In Greenland, right? Yeah. <laughs> Quote Princess Bride. Oh. But I mean, he was, he was, he had to go find another company and build it all back up again while he was in his 60s. Yeah. So he, those residuals are not necessarily reliable. No, no. And that's why I like to, to really foster the mindset that you have multiple streams of residual or passive income, right? You've yeah. got to have different streams of income coming from different places. And, and I'll tell you, like, that's the one difference between me now, Chris Miles of today, versus Chris Miles of 2007, mm-hmm. who was, you know, you know, chest thumping and thought he was awesome because he's this 29 year old, you know, retired figured guy. The word out. Yeah, I figured it out, you know, yeah. and, but I hadn't. Right. It was it was it was all about that cash flow. Cash mm-hmm. flow is what creates freedom. Right. So what are you doing to help people find that passive income? Finding deals. Right. Um, everybody has their own unique way of doing it. Um, I love real estate. I think that's one of the best places to go. Um, now, if you're an active investor, I mean, you you probably have access to some of the, the best, best deals. deals. You don't even need me, really. <laughs> right, I right. mean, I mean, you don't really don't need that because you've got some of these best deals that you can say, you know what? Maybe 10% of my deals I'm wholesaling, I hold on to. Like mm-hmm. maybe I cherry pick a few of these and keep it in my portfolio, and that's that's not a bad thing. Like yeah. that could be amazing. You know, um, there's syndications, there's different funds, there's there's so many deals. Um, and I brought this up in our mastermind a few months back. You know, when I did my presentation, I said like. I didn't ask who was financially independent because I already knew that 80% of the room wasn't Mm -hmm. right. Just from, you know, from our context, you know, but I said like, guys, like you understand that if you're looking for passive deals, I'm like, who in here actually has deals right now that you can, you know, either turnkey operators, syndicators, fundraisers, whatever. And there were several hands that went up in the room. I'm like, here it is. It's right here in your own backyard, in your own group. Mm -hmm. Like ask, you got to see it versus just being so hyper-focused on that business that you forget about everything else. Yeah, it's actually kind of cool. Like, I think Casey Ryan, right, mm-hmm. in our group. Yeah. He's bought like 100 deals from Brian and Alex Moses in our group. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe he's the one that took your advice to heart. I don't know, <laughs> but it's kind of cool to witness. Yeah. Um, so, we were talking this morning, right? I mean, you've got people that are, you're helping them place their money. Mm-hmm. What, is it, what is it exactly your role in, uh, for someone that's got money, mm-hmm. right, and they're trying to, get that passive income. What is your role in helping them deploy that capital? So I'm purely just a strategist and a connector, mm-hmm. right? So I don't offer any deals myself. I don't raise money, you know, therefore I don't need a securities license for that, right? right. Um, and I'm not telling people you should do this, but I'm like, okay, based on your situation, let's find the cash. Let's see what we can do to get creatively, pull the equity out. You know, do we start liquidating stock accounts? Are we like, you know, finding ways to get a HELOC or whatever? Like how do we get the money out so we can go and deploy it? Mm-hmm. And then I just connect them with the people that do that you know so if they want more rentals great here's some people i i know and trust and vetted talk to these guys these guys are great or here's some syndications i think would be awesome for you you know and just always trying to find those best deals that help them get to their goal as quickly and safely as we can so in a way your role is to help someone initially Mm -hmm. figure out where money is leaking personally in Mm -hmm. their life yep and once you've helped them figure that out they've got extra cash flow or less expenses yeah right and then from those savings you're helping them to deploy that to create passive income yeah or even just the cash they got sitting around in savings right like that's most people coming to me usually have cash sitting around now Mm -hmm. they're like okay how do i get my money working for me so i have to keep working so hard for my money and so 
get that money. Let's deploy it. Let's get it moving into there. Let's see if we can make it work, you know? And, and sometimes we'll even like run it through things like, you know, you know, like life insurance or something like that. Like yeah. run it through and back out so we can double dip and double arbitrage our money and do all so kinds of So what does stuff. that mean? I mean, you, you just said a lot of really big words there. So yeah, arbitrage. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it mean? Well, you should probably initially explain what arbitrage is. Cause I, I know we do it. That's what we do in wholesale. Yeah. By definition, we're arbitraging. Yeah. But not everyone knows what arbitrage means. Yeah. So let's, let's elaborate what arbitrage means. Yeah. Easiest example of arbitrage is look at the bank, right? Yeah. They, they borrow your money. They go into debt to you when you put money in savings and then they turn around, they loan that money back out to make money. Mm -hmm. The cool thing is if a bank, with them, they can loan out up to 10 times their money legally. The big right. five, they can do up to 40 times. Is it 40? That's what got them in trouble in the, in, during the last recession. It's big to fail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac was like 100 times. You know, so wow, I they, that's that why big. they need the bailout. They're a little yeah. bit too upside down, right? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, at least, you're usually at least 10 times. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they use that money to go in and arbitrage it, right? They, they create a higher return than what they're paying on it, which, like you said, in wholesaling, it's kind of what you're doing as well. I yeah. mean, you're doing it like with an infinite, almost an infinite rate of return in some ways. You right. Know? So basically, the example, you borrow it to and you percent and you lend it 4% and you're just collecting the difference between the two. Right. But the difference though is that it's not just 2%, is it? It's 2% times 10. Because if you pay 2% and you earn 4%, mm -hmm. yeah, that's not, that's not 2%. That's a 100% return because you right. made double on that money, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then the whole life insurance. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that? Because I don't think everyone knows what whole life insurance is. Yeah. So whole life insurance, you know, everybody knows term insurance. That's death insurance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whole life actually has a component where you can build up savings. And there's other things like universal life in various forms, right? Um, but there's only one type of insurance that you can use where you can get that kind of arbitrage, where you can double dip, where you can have money over in the insurance earning interest and you can get a line of credit against it, whether from the insurance company or from a bank, get a line of, line of credit against it to use that money to mm -hmm. invest in your right. deals, right? So like, for example, um, you know, like say somebody wants to buy a turnkey property, it's, you know, they're just gonna put the 20% down, right? They, so they put down 40,000 bucks. Well, you can have that money come out of savings, but when you move the money out of savings account, right? The 40,000 is now gone. It's not earning interest in the savings account. It's not anymore. earning the 1% anymore. Yeah, it's not earning the point nothing percent, <laughs> right? That you get taxed on, yeah. you know, but it is out there working for you, which right. is good. But, uh, but again, it's gone. And then you take the cash flow and you try to rebuild it back up again so then you can do the next deal. Um, same strategy you can do with life insurance, right? You can put money in. Now there's cost of insurance, things like that. But if you do it right, where I call it max ROI, infinite mm -hmm. banking, right? Where you get the lowest cost possible. So then your money's growing and, and not only is it growing tax-free, right? Which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, it's earning more than point nothing percent. It's earning at least four or 5% just yeah. by itself. Um, not sexy. By the way, you can never retire off of this thing. You need real estate. You need these other mm -hmm. investments, right? But it's earning four or five percent at least tax-free. Um, it's also in most states protected from losses creditors one hundred percent. Right. So even if you got millions of dollars in there and you get sued and they win, they can't touch that money. They can touch yeah. your savings account. They can tap into that all they want. Yeah. But, they but can't this is another touch form this. of asset protection. It's another form of asset protection, right? Yeah. Uh, but the cool thing is, you know, again, if you're leveraging that money <laughs> and you're lending that sucker out. I mean, now you get this, you know, nice aspect where you're in debt to everything. You can't mm -hmm. get sued for equity you don't have, right? Right. So basically, we're just borrowing from from the money that's already in there. Just like if you got a collateralized line of credit against a savings account. Yeah. Right. But again, we don't want to earn point nothing percent. We want to earn more than that. Um, so, like for example, I have a I have a policy right now where they pay five point seven five percent. Right. Um, that's the gross return they pay me. 
Now I have a bank line of credit against that same cash that I can get at 3.25%. percent mm-hmm. So I've got this huge spread already. So bank line of credit secured by the whole life policy. Secured by the whole life policy. Yep. Did not know about that option. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Usually you do it through the insurance company and usually it's like 5% and yeah. that's cool. Um, but with the way the rates dropped, I've been telling my clients instead, I'm like, hey, let's switch over to the bank here because the banks are giving me a prime rate minus a half, but they bought them at 3.25. I'm like, if I borrow 3.25, it's earning 5.75. I'm making money there. And I'm making money on whatever I invest in too. So that turnkey property, I'm getting my cash flow. I'm using that to pay back towards a line of credit that I can just turn around and use again, right? right? And again, it's not like a bank, you know, well, it is a bank. If you use the bank, it is a bank line mm-hmm. of credit. But it's not like the typical bank line of credit where in the last recession, the danger was there is that they could cut it anytime they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Be like, we're done. We can't do it. Here, because they know the cash is there. It's, it's secured. And it's, it's guaranteed to never lose money. They're, they're willing to give you like 100% loan against it. Yeah. You know, and so you get this double dip effect. Usually adds at least another 3 to 5% return on top of the return you get for that property. Well, so what if, I like about this, and I never thought about this until this conversation right now. Yeah. Is that, A, no one can touch your insurance money. Yeah. Right? So that's asset protection. But B, because you're lending it to yourself, this property over here that you own is also indebted. Yeah. So 100%. They right. can't seize that either. Yeah. So you're really well protected. Yeah. Wow. Which any, any person that builds wealth, I mean, you want to basically look like the average middle, middle American, right? Mm-hmm. You would be like, yeah, I own my cars and I have a house. Yeah. You know, but that house is also leveraged too. So good luck getting that equity. Right. And so they're like, crap, where do I get the money? You know, and that's, that's where you want to be. You want to have that peace of mind knowing that, yeah, I've got wealth, but they can't tap into it. Yeah. The wealth I have is the wealth that you can't access. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And don't, so, and don't think for a minute that the politicians aren't doing the same exact freaking thing. Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's a, good, a great, great point. For someone that's new to this, mm-hmm. let's name some people that are doing this to further, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Demonstrate that this is not something we're just making up. Yeah. Right? Who are some famous people that everyone's heard of? Yeah. Besides me and Chris Noggle, because we're awesome. Like, I mean, we're pretty amazing. <laughs> but uh, I mean, like famous people would be like Walt Disney. Right. You know, like everybody, you know, has heard, the, well, maybe not everybody's heard the story of Disney World, right? He built Disneyland first. And that was like his, his kind of launch. And then he was secretly trying to buy land in Orlando, mm-hmm. right? And it's just all swamp back then. Well, he, he wanted to get bank money, but the banks were like, <laughs> no, yeah. come on. You know, I, I know, I know you're a big visionary. But this is a little bit too big for stop us. Stop dreaming. Yeah, stop dreaming. And so eventually they put the terms on and said, listen, if you come up with your own cash, okay, maybe we'll lend you the rest, right? Mm-hmm. You got to put some skin in the game. So where'd he get it? He borrowed it from his life insurance. He went to his life insurance company, borrowed that money, used that as the collateral. And then the bank said, great, we'll give you the rest. Yeah. Right. So another example there, a Pampered Chef was actually started using life insurance. They borrowed the money from their life insurance policy. They create Pampered Chef. So it, maybe you don't know them, but your yeah. wife probably does. You right. know? Um, you know, also, uh, JC Penney during the, the last, you know, during the great depression, mm-hmm. right. Um, JC Penney actually paid their payroll using life insurance policies. Uh, Walmart actually bought policies on their employees. Um, same thing like GE did, like a lot of pensions were paid cause they buy policies. And then the way they would re- replenish the pension is they would, once the person died, that death benefit would pay back the pension fund and they could keep paying pensions. Oh, Walmart just did it to bank on it. They're yeah. like, Hey, even if this person's like an hourly employee, I'm going to get a little policy on them. But family members, when they found out, said, wait a minute, we didn't have insurance on our, our family member, but you did. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even work for you at the time they died. Right. But you just banked on their death. That's not fair. You know, so then Walmart had to deal with PR issues. 
Yeah. So, yeah, all kinds of people. Even banks, uh, even during the last recession, um, I remember uh, Wells Fargo had 22% of their money tied up in cash value life insurance that they were storing. There. Really? Yeah. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Hershey's also. Mm. I think Hershey's has has that as well. Yeah. Uh, to, to, um, and, you know, there's a brand name, right? Everyone knows yeah. about them. Um, so, uh, changing gears here. Uh, you know, we talk about predictive index on the show every once in a while. Yeah. And um, I say I'm a bit of an odd duck. Mm-hmm. I'm an individualist. Yeah. We ran a PI. I actually asked Austin McCurdy, mm-hmm. can you just send me a list of all the other individualists in CG? And your name was, uh, was the first one I saw. Yeah. So can you describe for someone what it is like to be an individualist? Because I think we're, we're oddballs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Even in our group, right? Because everybody's like the Maverick captains, like we're gonna take over the world. It's like fifty percent right? Mavericks in there. Yeah, it yeah. really is. It's yeah. it's just obscenely crazy <laughs> how many you know these just go get them type entrepreneurs. Right. And then like with us, and 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 I've always been, I, I'm actually a geek on tests mm-hmm. like this, right? Because um, I was a sociology major in college with a oh. with a triple minor in psychology, ballroom dancing, and Japanese, right? And uh, and so I was all about it, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, you know, I remember like taking the Myers-Briggs and same thing, the Myers-Briggs, I would fall in like three different types, right? Or even like the color code, you know, the four colors, mm-hmm. right? Ever, whenever there's a quadrant test, I would like hit three of them. And they're like, oh, it's almost like a three-way tie. I'm mm-hmm. like, this is the story of my life. Yeah. And then of course we get this PI test and I'm an individualist, right? Mm-hmm. And when, it came, when they started describing what it was, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. That's yeah. me, you know? And, and even for an individualist, I'm kind of unique in some ways, right? Because um, I was almost a captain, but, I was slightly more introverted than my, whatever the C was. I can't remember the C now, but um, if they were flip-flops. Steady versus. Um, oh yeah, steady versus uh, uh, change or whatever it is, yeah. right? Yeah, so that stability. I had a little bit yeah. there, but that introversion or whatever it was that flip-flopped, if it would have flip-flopped, it would have been a captain. Yeah. But, you know, I was just a little bit off on that one because, you know, I actually like to watch Netflix at night instead <laughs> of just, you know, hanging out with people. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that, um, According, I, there's a book, um, what was it? Uh, I'm Surrounded by Idiots, right? <laughs> and the book is, is basically a book about the disc profiles, you know, or mm-hmm. if you look at oh, the yeah. colors, right? And they basically say, like, the rarest combination is someone that's a high D and a high S, which yeah. is pretty much what an individualist is. Mm-hmm. And so what's fascinating for me is that um, supposedly it's the rarest group of people. Yeah. Yet, if you look at my organization, we got four or five of them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yep. so when Phil Green was in here yesterday, he's like, you know, how weird is it, right, mm-hmm. to have an organization full of individualists? But then probably what's happening is that, you know, we attract who we are. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. I only have a few people in my company, like a few core people. Everybody mm-hmm. else is like contractors. And funny enough, we got a guy that's an individualist. Like mm-hmm. 50% of us are individualists, basically, right? Yeah. It's, it's weird. We put all the odd people in the same room. Yeah. Uh, so what is your passion? What is your why? What keeps you going? You know, kind of like I said earlier, like... Um, uh, you know, nine years ago, I launched Money Ripples, right? Um, yeah, I remember I was out for a run. I was working for the other company before, but I was getting ready to split off. I, was, I just had that feeling like that was the next step. And I remember I was out for a run. And while I was out there, I'm like, well, what am I going to call my company? I was trying to come up with like creative names like cash flow something, maybe a ninja. You know, no, I can't, can't do that, you know. But, uh, you know, I was coming up with trying all these little cash flow names. And then I thought about my vision, right? And I thought about like, you know, I was telling you this morning, you know, about that, that chiropractor, you know, that we freed up $6,000 a month for them, you know, in the first month, 
you know, they didn't go and just save it or invest it. He bought a four wheeler, which allowed him to take off Saturdays and, and spend time with his family. And his mm-hmm. wife was bawling in tears because how it changed their life and it's creating this new legacy for his children. And I thought about that ripple effect, right? Yeah. And what it created for them. And I thought about that reflect not just through the family and generations beyond him, but the community and the country and ultimately across the world. Yeah. And that's when that name Money Ripples popped in my head. And that's really what my passion is, is creating that ripple effect. You know, like I'm a leader and a teacher. I love teaching people to give them hope. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's anything from my story, it's, hey, you can get through crap, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes, absolutely. There's, there's hope through perseverance. You know, there's, there's hope that there's something better, uh, something better than the status quo. Because the status quo drives me nuts. The status quo is like the very thing you should avoid. The yeah. status quo is where broke people live. That's with people that have unsuccessful marriages. That's where people are unhealthy. That's the status quo right now, right? Yeah. We don't want to be that. We don't want to live ordinary lives. We want to live extraordinary lives. And so my passion is really just spreading that message, helping people do that. That's why I can't quit, you know, because I got to keep it going. I love that. I love that passion. Um, there's actually a quote that I'm trying to get Elias, he's our graphics guy, to put out there. Mm-hmm. And it's that, because um, we were talking about status quo, Scott Dudes and myself. Uh-huh. And um, I basically said to him something along the lines of, either you challenge either you challenge the status quo or you live the status quo life. <laughs> and that's not a good life. No. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, you just mentioned the, the, the person that got, um, what did they purchase? Uh, four-wheeler. Four-wheeler. Yeah. Um, so we were talking this morning also about there's an element of like car shaming, right? Uh-huh. Uh, that people feel like you shouldn't buy a car until you've hit a certain milestone financially. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I think anybody who owns a Tesla sucks. I agree. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no. I mean, I, I honestly don't care that much because mm-hmm. I know every, every one of us have our own priorities, right? We have our own things that are good. Um, I do think that there has to be a, an element of stewardship. That's mm-hmm. a big thing I try to teach a lot is, yeah. is that there's, there's scarcity if you're a, a spender, right? Mm-hmm. Where you always try to make money, but then you blow it. It's easy come, easy go. Yeah. And there's scarcity even as a saver if you're hoarding money, right? Like typical Dave Ramsey fan, you know? Those people will never be financially free. Yeah. But in the middle is a steward, right? It's kind of like the parable of the talents in the Bible, right? Like those that know the Bible story is like there's three servants who are given money, that's different sums of money, mm-hmm. And they're charged to go out and make more with it. And there's two of them that did and went and doubled. And they say, awesome, you're hired. Basically, you're coming to my kingdom. You've been a good servant, right? Mm-hmm. But there's the one person that said, I was given the one sum of money. He's, he was scared of losing it. He buried it because he was a Dave Ramsey fan, right? Yeah, you can tell I love Dave Ramsey so much. <laughs> um, he buries the money. And then he digs it back up and gives it back to the master. Said, hey, look, I, I didn't lose your money. Here it is. Yeah. He's like, you knew what I required of you. Get the heck out. You're, like, right. you're gone. You know, in fact, I'm going to give your money and give it to the guy that made double over here. Yeah. Right. And that's what a steward does. A steward wants to amplify and beautify and make things better and basically bless more lives. Right. Yeah. And so when you, when you're looking at this, you know, when you're looking at money and everything, when it comes to cars, or whatever, it's like, great. Is, is that allowing you to become a better steward? You know, now I'll tell you from my own personal experience, like just buying a car to try to attract people does not attract the right people. No. Like you get, you get, I call them rim lickers, right? <laughs> like I remember there's one time I bought that Mercedes, you know, and I bought it all for show. Like in yeah. the 20s, I was just doing everything for show. That's why I bought the house. I wanted to wow people, wow them with my Mercedes. And I remember there's a 19 year old kid that was like out in the parking lot after I came back, you know, from, you know, eating chicken wings, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and he's right out there. He's like, this is my dream car. Yeah. I'm like, cool, man. He's like, yeah. 
That was the only person that ever said anything about the car. Everybody else, I never got a single client from that stupid car, right? Yeah. So for me, that doesn't make sense. Now, you, should, you shouldn't drive a jalopy, right? You shouldn't mm -hmm. be driving a beater, right? But, you know, if you want to get a car, great. But make sure that your cash flow supports it. Make right. sure that you got more than enough money to, to be able to make the payment. Don't, don't do like what I did where I did get that Mercedes, and then I wasn't managing my cash flow well, and then I lost it. You know, right. That's humiliating, and that, that does something to you psychologically that it's hard to repair from that. You know, yeah. it, it, I would tell you that my recovery financially took longer just because I was dealing with all the mind games. Well, we were talking about this yesterday, actually, that um, I'm, I've still got the scars, right, from mm -hmm. 2007 through 2009 and 10. Yeah. So I, I'm totally with you there. And then the, the part about getting a car to impress anybody. Mm -hmm. I remember um, I, when I quit Intel, mm -hmm. I told my boss, like, because I want to go buy an S-Class Mercedes. Yeah, terrible reason to quit a job. <laughs> I was like, he's like, why do you want to quit? Why do you want to go do this? Like, because do, doing what I'm doing now, that's not. I'm not gonna get this car. Uh huh. And then also while I was at Intel, mm -hmm. on my bucket list was an Audi S4. Right? I wanted to get an Audi S4. Yeah. And so in real estate, I was able to buy one. Uh huh. There was no happiness like yeah that was that we achieved uh, in having that car that we wanted to buy. Yeah. So a you're not impressing anybody, mm -hmm. and uh, this is what uh, Keith Cunningham says. We often mistake pleasure for happiness. Yes. There's pleasure when you buy the car. Mm -hmm. There's not to say that you don't feel good for a little bit. Yeah. It's very short lived. Unless, unless it has accelerated torque like you've got, like that's pretty fun, you know, but, <laughs> but it's true. Like I remember when I bought the Mercedes, you know, it was like the alabaster white E500, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, I got it. That was on my vision board. But after two weeks, it was just a car. It's just a car. It was just metal. Yeah. You know, I'm just driving this metal thing down the road. And, uh, and it was, it was kind of an epiphany for me. It was like, well, do I really care? You know? And now granted, I, I, I drove crap cars. Like when I had to get rid of it, I, mm -hmm. I had to borrow a car from my friend, you know, that was like, like worth 3000 bucks. The headlights were very glazed over, you know, mm -hmm. from wear and things like that. And I wasn't proud of it. You know, it, 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 it hit my ego a lot. Yeah. But the cool thing is eventually I had to let go of the ego. And when I did, that's when everything came back in my life. When I submitted, right. When I let go of the ego, it was almost like it was, it opened up space for me to have more. Yeah. Uh, but now when I have more, it's like, I don't give a crap. Like, I don't care what you think about my car. You know, I got a nice cool Nissan Maxima. Like yeah. I like it. Right. Well, it's and, black. And the reason why I bring that up <laughs> is because I, uh, I, I believe it feels like there's a mm -hmm. certain amount of elite elitism, mm -hmm. right. Where they feel like you can judge somebody based on the car they drive because yeah. maybe they shouldn't buy it yet. Right. And for me is just mind your own business. Yeah. Right. Like no one's judging you for taking these vacations. Yeah. No one's judging you for working. Well, maybe some people are judging, but not a lot of people are judging you for yeah. only working 20 hours a week. Right. Right. Exactly. Why are you judging other people for wanting to have a nice car? That's exactly kind of what goes through my mind. Yeah. You shouldn't care. And neither should they. You, you, you don't have enough time in the day. There's so many more things you'd be worrying about right now that yeah. make your life amazing than the car. Exactly. Yeah. So what is your biggest struggle right now? My biggest struggle, um, although it's getting exciting now, is uh, replicating me, right? Uh, yeah. Stepping into that visionary role, you know, and, and stepping more there, you know, because I mean, like being an individualist, they gave me the choice. They're, you know, the consulting company I use, they're like, you can either be a visionary or an integrator. You can be either. You can run your own show. You, you basically have done it already. Like I'm the number one BSer when it comes to hiring contractors and never hiring an employee, yeah. right? I finally hired my first employee that's now my integrator and my CMO, and she's incredible. And, uh, and just having people replace me, like ego used to prevent me from that and hyper control. I want to mm -hmm. control it. I want to get the best bang for my buck because I'm all about efficiency, right? But after doing it, I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. This, this is the way life should be. 
especially if you really want to go into this whole another level, another game, you can't see it if you're just stuck inside everything. And so to be able to step out as a visionary to be able to have this clear vision, it's just like yeah. hiking a trail and be able to see more of the valley. You're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I think uh, it was Mark Del Torre that said this uh, at one of our events, was that mm-hmm. as you go to each camp, I think, at, at Mount Everest, yeah, you have a different view. Different base camp. Different yeah. base camp, and you had a different view. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it feels as you're growing uh, and, and hiring more people to, uh, to, to help you implement your vision and your dream. Absolutely. What is your superpower? Superpower is teaching. Uh, teaching, patience is a big one. Uh, even though I get impatient all the time, yeah. you know, but, uh, but definitely like I have that steady, you know, steadiness. Like I don't give up. Um, I'm just relentless, I guess you could say in a lot of ways. You know, it's interesting cause Gary Harper, uh, he shared that, uh, in his opinion or what he's seen is that individuals make the best teachers. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, is there a book you've gifted more than any other? Uh, that book would probably have been, uh, there's a couple of them. I'm trying to remember which one I've gifted more. Um, I, I know um, Think You Grow Rich has been one that I've done mm-hmm. a lot of. But also there's a, a book and a movie. Actually, I gave out a movie called The Ultimate Gift. Um, so it was, movie came out around 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made it to a book. I'll honestly tell you, the movie's better than the book. It has okay. James Garner in it, you know, and, you know, it's a pretty, pretty decent movie. Mm-hmm. But that movie changed me. It really helped me to see about legacy and, and just that bigger you know bigger view of trying to leave something behind more than just money and uh it impacted me a lot and i, I gave that gift out like one christmas i was just sending it to everybody you that's know? awesome uh, i want you to think about something you want to leave the listeners with i'll make just a couple of announcements guys if you got value today from listening to chris please like subscribe share comment it helps us reach more people uh, and then if you guys are interested in growing your business, send me a DM, steve.trang. We'll see if it makes sense for us to work together. What are some last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? You know, my shirt says it all, right? I mean, cash flow equals freedom. Um, if there's anything that you should be focused on, it's not just the cash flow in your business, not just the money you're earning, like the active income, look for passive income. You know, look for ways to free up cash and then look to ways to get that money deployed, working for you so you don't have to keep working so hard for it because there will be a point there will definitely be a point where you'll say i'm tired of this crap like why am i in the rat race mm-hmm. you could be a multimillionaire and still be in the rat race just so you know and and we know those we've we've met those people we don't want to be there you really yeah. want to create that freedom now and you do that you'll be one of the most intelligent people out there if you can figure that out and make it work and i'll tell you it's easier than you might think it is yeah. you know when you have that intention and you know exactly what you're going for it's amazing how the vision pulls you faster to that goal. Like you get there hyper, hyper fast, yeah. if that's even a word. <laughs> hyper speed. Hyper speed. Ludicrous. <laughs> Ludicrous uh, speed. <laughs> if someone wanted to get a hold of you, how would they reach you? Yeah, two ways they can do it. Uh, one, they can go to our website, moneyripples.com, right? Uh, the other way is actually follow my podcast, The Chris Miles Money Show, you yeah. know, which we have on all the channels. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Same here. Thank you guys for watching. Thanks a lot.